Today's teaching text comes from Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there was a trend that Allison and I noted in our early years of living in New York and then in our early years of leading Trinity Grace. And uh, it's a trend that's sort of both troubling and amusing to me. Um, we, we observed that when things would get really crazy or really busy or really painful in, in our lives, um, we would sort of start kind of making all these excuses around the stage of, of life that we were in. And we would be basically using this rationale like, hey, things are really hard right now, uh, so we're eating out a little bit more than we want to, or, or we're not doing as much of this healthy thing as, as we would like to be doing, or we're doing more of this unhealthy thing that we, we would like to not be doing as much. We're not really practicing Sabbath right now, but when things calm down, we're going to get this thing right. We're going to we're going to set these patterns um, up up as they should, and 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 then what would happen is we would notice that not just a, a day or a week or a month, but like six months or a year or two years um, would would have gone by, and the peaceful, easy season that sort of seemed like it was off in the distance somewhere around the corner uh, would would never really come. Uh, the the time to sort of like oh, now it's easy to set all these things up in a healthy way, uh, never really uh, arrived. And what happened instead uh, was that we, we just learned to live with those unhealthy patterns that we had sort of excused as survival time trends. And um, honestly, some of them were just little quirky things that weren't going to cause too much damage, uh, especially in the short term. But some of them were really spiritually per- perilous. And some of them were connected to um, particularly the the task of, 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 of spiritual leadership. And so I would look up and find a period of time had gone by where I was primarily reading the scriptures or, or connecting with God for the sake of preparation, uh, that I, w- I was reading the Bible for what I was going to say to someone else, not for what God was going to say to my own heart. And, and maybe you get by for a week or two where that's okay, but o- over time, that's a seriously spiritually perilous place to be. We, we would notice that we were basically coping with our life. We would use food or drink or, or entertainment um, to, to comfort us in the, in the place of pain, sort of like this spirit of entitlement would grow up. Like, I, I've been working hard. I've been going through this difficult thing. I deserve, you know, X and fill in, fill in the blank. But it was basically like a coping mentality for our life or we would start to spend our money without, you know, thinking very much about the future. And Allison will tell you I was certainly more... Um, you know, uh, an offender in that in that regard. But um, I remember one was in particular I, I was deeply saddened about. In our very early years of our marriage, we had been counseled in this direction, and we'd made a real point to never go to bed in a fight, never go to bed angry. And we kept that for several years of our, of our marriage. We would stay up late sometimes, whatever it took, but we would do everything we could to not let, you know, that phrase in the scriptures, don't let the sun go down on your anger. So we would uh, try to resolve. And I remember falling asleep on the couch uh, one night, you know, a few years into our marriage, realizing this was the first time we were going to bed furious at one another. And um, again, it was that rationale. It's like, well, this is a, a crazy time of life and we're going to get, we're going to get to a point. And and the reality is, uh, we most of us never wreck our lives in one day. 
it is a long series of, of, of compromises that take place over and over the old frog in the boiling water sort of illustration and and right my my heart hurts as I hear you know story after story of this leader falling in this way or that leader that I respected not being the person that that we, we thought they were and and the reality is you know, as, as easy as it is to turn critique on, on someone in a, in a moment like that, I have to look at my own heart, my own story, my own history, my own small compromises along the way to cope with life. And, and basically, what we had to learn, what we are still learning, quite frankly, is that the, the easy time is, is usually never coming right around the corner. Uh, we have to learn to live in our real life. We're still learning to live in our real life. And I, and I also don't, you know, sometimes you hear pastors talk about their sin struggles and it's like, I know you guys are dealing with pornography addiction and, and adultery and, and, and terrible tempers and, and, you know, like these horrible things. But, I, you know, I just care too much and I just work too hard. Like, no, we have, we have real, real sin uh, in, in our lives that we're wrestling with and that we need the, you know, purifying power of the Holy Spirit, the conviction and repentance that is a part of our regular life as followers of Jesus as apprentices there's a uh, we're doing two alpha courses right now and there's a joke that always comes up early in alpha because uh, on one of the weeks where Nicky Gumbel and I love Nicky Gumbel this is actually probably true about him and very few people in the world but he's talking about the brokenness and the sin of the world and how um, he's a participant in that as well and the story the illustration he tells to illustrate you know like the, the, the shame that comes from sin is this one time when he was Christmas shopping and he almost uh, you know was accused of stealing a sweater that he didn't steal basically like he was in a shop and the alarm went off as he was leaving and that's the big sort of illustration of sin that he, that he gives. And I'm always like, come on, man, this is the worst thing you've done. And honestly, it might be. Nikki's amazing. But uh, we have real stuff that, we are, that we're wrestling with. And, and that sort of mentality, that trend that Alice and I would, would notice in our, in our life, in our marriage, in our church leadership, I'm going to call it the blip mentality for right now. Um, because it was basically like, the things that are hard right now, the things that we're in the middle of, they're just a blip and they're not the norm. And soon we're going to get back to the norm. And, uh, and, and a bunch of the ways that we're living right now, we're going to just let it go because this is a blip moment. And, and the reality is I, I see this mentality in, in our world right now quite, quite a bit. Uh, see if you recognize this in your own mind and heart as soon as we get this virus under control. As soon as I know a little bit more about my job, as soon as we can meet in person again, um, as soon as we get these election results more solidified, as soon as we get out of the difficulties of 2020, right, things are going to what? Go back to normal. Um, I thought that, I guess as many of you have thought something like that, but I want to ask the question, what if things are not going to go back to normal? And I'll admit, that's a hard question for me to ask because I don't like it. It cuts against my nature as, as, as just a person. I am a natural optimist. Um, quite frankly, it's kind of easy for me to get a little annoyed, uh, sometimes even despise pessimism. Um, if, if someone is always the glass is half empty, I start to get bothered. I start to get frustrated. Um, so please know, I would love 
for 2020 just to be a blip. I would have loved for all those seasons that Allison and I lived through in, in those years I was describing earlier to have just been a blip, but the reality is they, they weren't, and eventually I had to confront that reality um, that the much easier season wasn't right around the corner. And so what in this moment, if, if we're not just right around the corner from things taking a big upturn and getting, getting so much easier and so much better, what if they aren't? And the reality is, truthfully, no one really knows. Um, and even our human best guesses are just that, they're, they're guesses. But my question is, how will we live if things get more challenging? How will we cope? How will we thrive? How will we not just survive? How will we live if things get more challenging? Are we ready for that? Because if you, pre- if you prepare on one level for things to get more difficult and then they don't, that's great, you know, like fantastic. But if you simply always expect that things are going to get better, um, you can be really underprepared for some of the challenges of life. Uh, Peter Turchin uh, is a tenured professor at the University of Connecticut at Storrs and um, I didn't know a ton about his life until this, this week, so I'm not trying to come across as a Peter Turchin expert, but I'll tell you a little bit of what I know uh, before I tell you some of his thoughts. Uh, he studied biology at NYU. He went on to get his doctorate uh, in zoology from Duke, um, and his, uh, sort of, he, he wrote his dissertation on the Mexican bean beetle, um, so this ladybug-like pest that feasts on legumes um, in areas between the United States and Guatemala. So this is the guy you're hoping you get sat next to at a dinner party. He's an expert on beetles. What, what more could you want? And so Peter observed as he was, you know, in, in the science of ecology and the early and middle part of his career, he was observing that most of the sciences um, eventually transitioned to, 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 to more of a, a mathematized approach to how they do their, do their discipline. And he, he, he had seen this with ecology, how, you know, it used to be that um, people in his field would study bugs by pinning them to particle board and looking at the different, you know, species of, of, of that particular bug and, and, and studying them in, in a real particular and, and narrow way, um, but, but as more and more math and statistics got involved in, in his discipline, he was re- realizing that it, that it changed how they, they approached understanding these populations and, and how they operated in this part of the world and how they had operated previously in, in, in different regions of the world. And, and I'm not trying to make us beetle experts here by, by any, any, any means, but eventually Peter Turchin got to the point where he felt like he had gone as far as he could with the Mexican bean beetle and with the bugs that he had been studying. Can you imagine that? But he, he got to the point, he, he tells um, Graham Wood, in an article that's published in The Atlantic right now, he said, when I had a midlife crisis, I was looking for a subject where I could help with that transition to a mathematized science. And there was only one left, and that was history. So he went from studying bugs to studying humans and to studying uh, historical populations and groups in different times and and how how classes related to uh, society's um, well-being. And... um, he began to apply these mathematized ecology skills to studying people groups and history and why and when societies fail. So there's an article about his ideas right now in The Atlantic, and if you want to read it, the title is Thrilling and Inviting, and it's uh, The Next Decade Could Be Worse. Um, that's, that's the title of the article. So I told you I was an optimist. When I see a title like that, I want to run away. I do not want to open that article. But a friend had sent it to me, and I was like, whatever, I'm going to open it. 
And, and, and I did, and here's a section from it. And I do not mean this to be doom and gloom, but uh, this is Peter Turchin, not me. So take this for what it was. Um, the year 2020, this is Graham Wood, the, the writer of the article quoting Turchin's ideas. He says, the year 2020 has been kind to Turchin. For many of the same reasons, it has been hell for the rest of us. Cities on fire, elected leaders endorsing violence, homicides surging. To a normal American, these are apocalyptic signs. To Turchin, they indicate that his models, which incorporate thousands of years of data about human history, are working. Not all of human history, he corrected me once. Just the last 10,000 years. He has been warning for a decade that a few key social and political trends portend an age of discord, civil unrest, and carnage, worse than most Americans have experienced. In 2010, he predicted that the unrest would get serious around 2020 and that it wouldn't let up until those social and political trends reversed. Havoc at the level of the late 1960s and early 70s is the best case scenario. All-out civil war is the worst. The fundamental problems, he says, are a dark triad of social maladies, a bloated elite class with too few elite jobs to go around, declining living standards among the general population, and a government that can't cover its financial positions. He goes on to say, you know, like looking at the data, 10,000 years of human history, you see these cycles of pain every 50 years or so. And, and I read it and everything in me wants to rise up and say, absolutely not. We can do something about this. We can change this. It doesn't have to be that way. And of course it doesn't. And I'm not trying to, uh, even though I've devoted this much time of this talk to, to him, I'm not trying to say that we should fully embrace Peter Turchin's view of the world by any means. As a matter of fact, at the end of the article, Graham Wood, the author, says, for my own sake, there are few thinkers I am more eager to see proved wrong. And I'm all there. If, if, it, if we're in the blip, that's fantastic. But I think it's interesting to consider uh, Turchin's view of the world, even for just a little bit, and especially even as we lay it as a background against Jesus' you know, teaching that we as his followers are meant to be the salt of the earth. I, w I won't go into all the article. You can read it yourself. But this idea that uh, we have produced um, more people in the elite class, ed educated and, and, and fairly wealthy, without enough opportunity to go around at, at that level. And we're seeing declining living standards for the rest of the world. And our, and our government is, is so highly leveraged um, in, in these places of debt. I'm not at all pretending to be an expert on these things, but um, I just want to let you know what begins to stir up in my heart. And my, my guess is you've bumped into some predictions or, or you know, a prophetic word from a friend or something over here in an article that you read that's got you worried about what could be coming next. And I just wanna say it should be okay for us to breathe and to acknowledge and to say, listen, this is really difficult and we don't know what's gonna happen. And it's okay that we don't know what's gonna happen. So what can we do? And I think what Jesus is trying to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount relates to what we can do, what we can know, even when there's a lot out there about what's to come that we don't know. 
Just one more little piece of background. Um, as a kid growing up uh, in, in a Baptist church uh, in, in the South, one of the things that we talked about all the time, and maybe you'll relate to this at your church, was something called the 1040 window. Uh, we had a map in our hallway of our church that laid out what the 1040 window was. And it's this region of the globe between this certain um, latitude and longitude that contained the, the, the highest concentration of people who had had not much or sometimes not any at all access to the message of Jesus. And so the Baptists that I grew up uh, going to church with, they were passionate about missions. They were passionate about taking the message of the gospel to, uh, to the whole, all of the world. This is like, you know, and, and there's amazing beauty and power in, in the way they embody this passion. I'm still inspired in so many ways by, by that passion in the, in the church I grew up with. There was this sense that um, Jesus had called you know, his disciples, his first disciples, to go into all the world, to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, and to carry the gospel. And that was still our mandate, still our call. That was one of the most loving, daring, adventurous, faith-filled things you could do to leave the comfort of your culture and to go to a cross-cultural mission field and to literally give your life to see that, that group of people come to know the love and salvation, the message of Jesus' gospel and the life that came from following Jesus. And I'm still, I still, I'm not denigrating that whatsoever. I'm inspired by that as a mentality. But what came as a part of that was this noble vision that essentially um, going to some far away place was the, one of the most meaningful things that you could do um, with your life, laying down your life to see, to see someone you know in a place far away that was different than you come to know Jesus. So I had this sort of in the back of my my mind, and even when I wandered from my faith, um, it was always sort of in there somewhere. When I came back to faith in college, this this mentality came back into my heart and mind. And and um, there was a preacher. Many of you may have heard his preaching or read his books, John Piper, who had a tremendous influence on me as as a young Christian. Um, and, and I used to listen to his sermons and I would just like be foaming at the mouth of how passionate I was at, at, at hearing what he had to say about the, the, the like living as a missionary in, in your world. And he used to say his heart for Bethlehem Baptist was to prepare his people to suffer for the sake of Christ. And that was so different from the mentality I had heard so many other preachers describe what they were after in their formation process. And Piper was like, I want to help our people learn to go and just lay down their lives absolutely for the sake of the world, for the sake of their neighbor, that they could create joy in God that's so substantial that everything else pales in comparison. And I was inspired by it. And he got me to read the biographies of these missionaries who did exactly that. And I remember reading To the Golden Shore right when I got to New York. Um, the bio biography of Adoniram Judson and his wife going to Burma and all the hardship they went through. I remember reading the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and, and we were inspired by Amy Carmichael, these people who were so fueled with love for Jesus that they were willing to suffer greatly to make Jesus known. But for the most part, the Christian life that I was living and that most of the people around me were living was one of relative comfort. And we were benefiting, and we have been and we are benefiting from um, the amazing parts of the American dream, uh, in so much that very few of us have to utterly rely on Jesus for our very life because we have so much else. Uh, so it became easy in my own life and in the lives of, of people in our church to sort of 
have Jesus become like this de facto life coach. He's a Sunday inspiration that's helping my life go better. He's a nice addition to a nice life. Uh, and, and rarely in my life did things get really hard because of my union with Jesus. They got really hard because life is really hard because there's, I believe there's brokenness in the world. It's in me, it's in, it's in the people around me, it's in our, 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 the human race across generations, across time and place. And so this brokenness spills over onto one another. It spills over back onto us. And so, um, but when there was a setback to my comfort, when there was immense difficulty, what I would find is I have great food. I have nice friends. I have my television to distract me. I have vacations to look forward to. I have opportunities to escape all around. And more than likely, right, things are going to get better soon. Jesus doesn't have to be my everything if I have so much else. And I remember hearing Piper say this, the world doesn't marvel when Christians get everything they want and remember to thank God for their blessings. The world marvels when someone has nothing but Jesus, and that is more than enough. That has stuck with me. So I want to say, I have no real idea uh, what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, that shouldn't shock you. Or what's going to happen uh, in 2021. I'm going to leave the predictions uh, for, for, you know, to other people, to the Peter Churchins of the world, or to the great prophets, or whoever. But I do hope that I haven't gotten so addicted to my comforts, that you haven't gotten so addicted to your comforts and to your entertainments and to this, this uh, way of life that we're either experiencing or expecting to be experiencing at, at any turn, at any moment, that we stand no chance whatsoever of actually being the salt of the earth in the way that Jesus talks about. I, I hope that we as a church family, I hope for my family, I hope for your family, I hope for each of us as individuals and as for us as a community, that we could come to know Jesus in such a way that if we had Christ and only Christ, that would actually be enough. Now, I'm not looking for my life to, to be you know, full of suffering by any means, but I hope that I, I would come to the place where if I just had Jesus, it would actually be enough. So I, I want to say I'm preaching to myself there as much as to you. But this word from Jesus about being the salt of the earth, it, we have to pay attention to where it comes. It comes at the end of these Beatitudes, at the end of the opening to the Sermon on the Mount as he's about to get into the rest uh, of, these, of these ethical implications and what it means to live as an apprentice of Christ in the world and what the kingdom looks like as it comes in the real details of our life. And what Jesus has been doing with the opening of this sermon is shocking his hearers. He has been, and I hope this has come through clearly as we've studied each of these Beatitudes, he's flipping the world on its head. He's giving us a picture of the blessed and, and those who, who are struggling, and he's flipping it on its head. And, and it's that whole, you know, the first shall be last and the last shall be first mentality, the upside down nature of the kingdom of God. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What? Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn. Really? Uh, they're going to be comfortable. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And for the most part, in Jesus' day, nobody, and certainly in our time, almost nobody was going around saying, if you're poor, you've got it made. Great blessings are yours if you're in such pain that you're in agonizing grief over it. You will be happy when you learn to limit your power for the sake of other people. Great things are coming your way if internally you're hungering and thirsting and craving justice to be done, craving righteousness. No, right? In Jesus' time, in our time, 
right? We celebrate wealth. We celebrate self-sufficiency. We do everything we can to avoid pain and suffering and mourning. We, we recognize and honor someone, not because, you know, you know, often because of them using what they have to get ahead, to, to promote themselves. We don't want to be hungry or thirsty in our inner being. Most of us really want to be satisfied. So Jesus begins this famous sermon saying, listen, the, the way you've been looking at the world is off. It needs to be readjusted. It needs to be refocused. It needs to be, in some ways, flipped on its head. The things you've been utterly or enthusiastically celebrating, maybe the very things that are blocking you from seeing God and God's kingdom, the things that you thought put you at a disadvantage or excluded you, maybe the very things that allow you to be in a position, a position to fully receive God and his kingdom. So Jesus is flipping things on his head. It should scandal us a little bit. Sometimes you need to, le- to read like the message translation or, or, or someone's commentary on this so that it really hits you with the weight. Uh, Dallas Willard has a couple of passages in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that have helped me as we've been studying this over the last couple of weeks. I'll, I'll, just, get, I'll just give you this. He says, we must see from the heart that blessed are the physically repulsive, Blessed are those who smell bad, the twisted, misshapen, deformed, the too big, too little, too loud, the bald, the fat, and the old, for they are riotously celebrated in the party of Jesus. Then there are the seriously crushed ones, the flunkouts and dropouts and burnouts, the broke and the broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the HIV positive and the herpes ridden, the brain damaged, the incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the parents with children living on the street, the children with parents not dying in the rest home, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved or emotionally dead, and on and on and on. Is it true that earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal? It is true, and that is precisely the gospel of heaven's availability that comes to us through the Beatitudes. And you don't have to wait until you're dead. Jesus offers to all such people as these the present blessedness of the present kingdom, regardless of circumstances. The condition of life sought for by human beings through the ages is attained in the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus. The life we're after is attained in the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus. And these shocking flip on your head should scandalize you quite a bit beatitudes or how Jesus begins his teaching of what the kingdom of God looks like in the world. Here's the thing. You don't have to read the scriptures very long to, to run across a couple of themes that are a little bit surprising at how often God insists on them and how often they go wrong. The first is God seems absolutely passionately committed to involving people in what he's doing in the world. He refuses just to airplane in or Iron Man in and fix everything and then get all the credit for it. He's absolutely insistent on using you and I in the process. And the other thing is we fail. 
over and over to be right representations of God. And Israel's story represents that for us really powerfully. But let's just hit those two really, really quickly. God seems passionately committed to involving people in what he's doing over and over in the world. We say this all the time at Trinity Grace. The kingdom of God moves along relational lines. God's utterly committed to that. Even at times when God overwhelmingly demonstrates his power, he usually does so through a human agent. Um, and by the time we get to the Gospels, uh, God's people, uh, God's heart for his people who are going to represent his character and love is on such full display that he's calling people to embody this kingdom, right? He's committed to sharing what God is like and letting that be carried forward by his disciples. That's why he mind-blowingly says that it's a good thing when he takes off because they're going to be given the Holy Spirit and they're going to go live as little Jesuses all over the known world. The tension as I mentioned, is we fail to be good representations of God, right? Um, We act in certain ways. We evoke the name of God that that doesn't in the slightest actually carry the character of Jesus. This is one of the biggest problems we're facing in our world right now. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a little Jesus? I, I said this a week or two ago, but it's really important to remember the first people who were called Christians, they didn't call themselves that. Someone else observed their life and said, you look like Christ. And so when we use Christianity as a label to prop up our own ideologies and to represent mostly ourselves and very little of Jesus, we should be in caution. We should be wary wary of of that type of life. And we should be wary when we see it in ourselves and when we see it in others. Sometimes you wish God would just step in and set the record straight, right? Especially when it's someone else misrepresenting Christ. You're like, gosh, why is he letting that go on? When it's me misrepresenting Jesus, then I'm a little bit glad he, he most often deals with us with patience. As I said, this is something Israel wrestled with in her story. So when Jesus shows up, like we've said this before, but Matthew's gospel in particular is written to a Jewish audience. And it is a restatement of what's happening in Torah. He's basically re-giving the constitution of the kingdom of God in the same way Yahweh did for the newly freed people who came out of Egypt through the Red Sea and into this new place of promise that they were headed. And they had had their whole culture reformed. They had to go from living as people of slavery to the people of freedom, people of life, people of Yahweh's uh, intimacy with God and intimacy with one another. And over and over again, the scriptures critique Israel for failing to represent God. God's absolutely committed to his kingdom moving along relational lines. And when they fail at that, and the ways they fail at that is... um, very specific. These are the sort of um, big themes, and I'm not going to hit them all, but these are some of the big themes you see Israel getting critiqued by her prophets for. They ran into issues with how their nation was governed. They demanded a king. Uh, uh, <laughs> the way their, their, their neighbors had, had a king. This is something that they ran into over and over again. They ran into issues with how and who they worshiped. They found themselves basically even not, maybe they didn't go to, 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 to the church and, and offer a sacrifice, but sometimes they did. They found themselves worshiping these false gods of neighboring nations. They wanted a king that wasn't God. They worshiped gods that weren't God. And then they ran into issues with forgetting the poor and using their power to take advantage of their neighbors in need. These are some of the most prevalent things you see Israel struggling with in this tension between God saying, I'm going to use people to advance my kingdom in the world, to bring my redemption, to be, to be a blessing, to show the world what I'm like. And, w- and the places that they failed was, was how they chose a ruler, was, 
what they worshiped and, and what had their heart's attention and affection and deepest devotion. And then that they forgot people other than themselves. They forgot the poor and they used their power to take advantage of those in, G- in need. And then the prophets would step in and they'd say, enough of these songs. Take care of your neighbor. Uh, uh, enough of trying to blend in with the world. Remember the heart of Yahweh who's called you to himself. Enough of trying to be find exactly the right particular rule. Remember that your king is Yahweh. Your king is God. This is the prophet speaking to Israel. What was happening was they were losing their distinctiveness. They were losing their flavor. They were losing their calling to be preservatives of what is good in the world. Ultimately, they were losing what Jesus here calls their saltiness. The uses of salt in the ancient world, this, you can find this on Wikipedia tomorrow or today, is it was used as a preservative mainly. Right? Only the wealthiest of people could use it as, as a seasoning for their food, but certainly it was, it was known in that regard as well. But it was primarily a preservative. It was also used for purification and cleansing, and then in certain situations it was used for seasoning. So as we hear Jesus' call to be the salt of the earth, I want to set it in the most sort of dominant motif that salt was used in, in, in Jesus' time, and that was to keep something from spoiling to keep something from rot- rotting. And basically what, what it was is things that were really good, uh, uh, rotting and spoiling and, 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 and breaking, breaking down, becoming rotten. That, when Jesus calls us to be the salt of the earth, is, is, is part of what we need to have in mind. And we have to accept our limitations on this, right? We're not going to be, right? We, we live in a, a time where we are bombarded with more information than we can actually take any meaningful action on. There's so many things in the world that right now you're not going to be able to substantially change. But you know what you can do is watch after your own heart and mind. Watch over those people that are in the sphere of relationships that, that you, you are in the midst of. Watch over the people at your work. Pay attention to the places you actually control. One of the, I think, greatest deceptions of the enemy in our time is to get our minds absolutely obsessed with all of these things out there that we can do very little about at all and neglect the the massive spheres of responsibility and influence that we have direct control of in our daily life. I want to give you a couple of places. Um, And I want to sort of tell you how how this came about. There's sometimes the sermon feels absolutely planned out to me and there's sometimes where it feels like it's up on two wheels right until I'm giving it. And this was more of a two wheels week. Um, But I want to tell you how this sort of came to me. I I began to start thinking like, what does it mean for someone to lose their saltiness? What does it mean to be a preservative agent of the things of God and the kingdom of God in the world? What are the things that that are causes of rot? What causes something to spoil? What causes something to go bad? And, I, and then I, the first place I looked was my own heart. What, what causes things to spoil, to, 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 to get rotten, to go bad in my own life? And, and one of those things that causes rot is pride. When I start to get obsessed with myself, my take on the world, my, my, you know, I become really swollen in my ego and anything that, that bumps up against that makes me want to react negatively and lash out. And, uh, and what helps me get out of the rot of pride? And the answer I came back with was worship. Again, this wasn't like a deep exegetical study of what's next in the scripture or even reading the commentaries. This was me looking at my own heart and saying, one of the primary things that helps me be the salt in my immediate sphere of 
responsibility and influence is when my heart worships God because it begins to cut out the rot of pride. I direct my heart's attention and affection and devotion up to God. I remember who He is. And then in turn, I remember who I am and I begin to get right-sized in my world. I begin to understand my place. And this swollen ego gets to get deflated a little bit because I'm directing my attention to God. I'm remembering His love. I'm remembering how much I'm forgiving. So worship is one of the ways that I push back against the rot of pride in my life. Um, something that keeps relationships um, from from spoiling from get, from going bad from getting broken is forgiveness right this is so simple but if you're in any meaningful intimate relationship with anyone you better learn how to do forgiveness or that relationship is going to spoil it is going to get rotten it is going to go bad we all because of our sinfulness and brokenness and the brokenness of the world we hurt one another in tremendous ways we offend intentionally and unintentionally if you don't learn to do forgiveness you will never be consistently the salt of the earth it's impossible so worship, forgiveness. How about integrity? One of, one of the ways that we protect in a community from deception, um, e- either intentionally or, or self-deception that comes in and, and, and clouds us, is integrity, is making sure that the words we say match the life that we're living, that there's a wholeness. This is connected to holiness, uh, that, that who God says He is and who God actually is. There's no disintegration. There's no uh, fragmentation in that. It, he is whole. And one of the things that protects against rot, spoiling, things going bad in our, in our world is when we have that wholeness, when we have a matching between our intentions and our word and, and our follow through. And when there's a misalignment in that, what do you do? You confess it and you repent and you allow the Holy Spirit to come in and bring healing. So again, just searching my own heart, whiz, uh, worship, forgiveness, integrity, then mercy. Mercy is one of the things that keeps out the rot of greed and abuse of power. It allows me not to just blow past the person on the street who's in profound need because I've got something really important for the church I'm on my way to do. It allows me to see that person as a human. It also allows me to see someone who radically disagrees with me out there in the, in the sphere on, on the Facebook, on, in the ether, and, and they're saying things that I just can't believe that you actually think that, and it allows me to deal with them in mercy and not allow the rot or the spoiling or the going bad of, of bitterness and dismissiveness and lack of, of lack of mercy to, to, to rot our relationships. And so when you hear the salt of the earth, like I used to think it means going off somewhere and, and falling like a seed in the ground. And for some of us, maybe that's what it means. But for many of us, it means dying to ourselves right in the immediate place that we are. It means pushing back on the rot of pride with worship pushing back on bitterness and unforgiveness by, by, sh- by sharing forgiveness with those around you. It means, it means watching out for integrity and wholeness uh, so that I don't fall into self-deception. Like I said, many of us, very few of us, wreck our lives in one moment. It's a series of small compromises where we let go of our integrity. It means letting mercy in to push back against the rot of greed and the abuse of power, not seeing uh, uh, other people. Um, 
when the apostles are describing this, this type of community, what it looks like, the salt of the earth community, one of the most inspiring things I, I see, them, see them say is that we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. When you get to the place where you're so invested in, in the loving community of those around you that their happiness actually inspires happiness in you and not just jealousy or that should be for me, but you can actually rejoice with someone that the good turn of fortune has come into their life, the blessing from God, you rejoice with them because you see the good in their life or you weep with them, right? It's not this distant like, oh, I'm glad that didn't happen to me or I'm not moved at all because they're not me or that's just a statistic. But actually, I move towards them in my very heart and I say, I weep with those who weep. To rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep is part of what it means to be the salt of the earth. I was talking with a friend. I was like, what do you think are the actual things that fight against rot in your relationship? One of the first things he said was laughter. It's like, I know no matter how tense things get between me and a friend or me and my spouse or me and my significant other, the, the, the thing that I, I'll note is when are we able to laugh? When are we able to not take ourselves or the fight so seriously that we can remember our friendship? And that moment of laughter is such a release. It's, and it's not to d- diminish the, the nature of the argument or the real substance of things we disagree on, but it's to remember this other person is a human being. They're part of the, 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 the blessed in the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are meant to keep us from saying, I'm blessed and the other out there isn't. It's, it's God leveling the ground and saying, all of us are welcome into his kingdom because of his mercy. And, and I could have just said this because as I got into it and I looked at worship, forgiveness, integrity, mercy, endurance, What I actually found was those were all in the Beatitudes. So when Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he's not just pulling it out of nowhere and saying, yeah, look up what salt's all about. It's a metaphor. And I mean, you're supposed to be a preservative and get out there and try that. No, he's saying, listen, it's everything that I've just been describing to you in the Beatitudes. That is how you live as the salt of the earth. Worship, forgiveness, integrity, mercy. Rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, laughter and endurance. How do you lose your saltiness? You blend in with the world. You start to so accept its impurities that you lose your ability to cleanse, to preserve, to season, to flavor. You can't help anyone notice the nuanced distinction of the kingdom of God breaking out in this place. You can't help preserve integrity, wholeness, mercy, goodness in this place. The fruit of the Spirit isn't pouring out because we've become exactly like everyone around us. It says that when salt loses its saltiness, it has no purpose anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I used to read those passages as a kid and I would be absolutely terrified. He's like, he's talking about hell. He's talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about like being useless, you know, useless in the kingdom of God. And, and ultimately, this is not a statement about your eternal destiny in, the, in this moment. There's other things to be you know, seriously considering about the reality of what comes after for us in the world. But this statement is about your usefulness as a representative of God's kingdom. Are you salty? Are you preserving what is good? Are, 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 are you seasoning? Are you cleansing? Are you an agent of reconciliation? And how do you do that? How do you not lose your saltiness and and basically blend in with the world? Go back to Jesus. 
Matthew begins his, his gospel this way. This is the first chunk of teaching as he's laying out this you know, almost like um, new take on the Torah for, for, for the people of God. In Luke 4, we get the, the description of Jesus' ministry in a slightly different way. Jesus goes into the, into the worship service, the synagogue, uh, on, on a holy day, and, and he's given the scroll of Isaiah, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. My ministry is to the broken, the bruised, the shattered, the crushed. Everyone mentioned in the Beatitudes, Jesus is saying, I've come to heal, I've come to restore, I've come to forgive, I've come to proclaim my Father's favor, to bring freedom. That's Christ. That's His ministry. And so you know what? That's your ministry. Your ministry is Jesus' ministry. That's what it means to be receiving the gospel of Jesus' salvation. That's what it means to be apprenticing under Christ. It means Christ's ministry becomes your ministry. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Even in 2020, having no idea what's coming in 2021, we are called to be the salt of the earth. What on earth does that mean? It means go back to the Beatitudes. Go back to the, the quiet, transforming friendship with Jesus. That's how we attain this life of being the salt of the earth. Go back to the Beatitudes. Go back to union with Christ. Everything you need is there, church. I have no idea what our church is going to need next month or next year. I absolutely promise you it is found in union with Jesus. We are called to be the salt of the earth. If things get better in two months, we are called to be the salt of the earth if things get dramatically worse in six months. No matter what, our future is secure because of what Jesus has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. No one can snatch you out of his hands. No one, read Romans 8, can separate you from his love. We are secure, secure enough now to take radical risks of love. The world doesn't marvel when we get everything we want and we remember to thank God for it. The world says there is salt, there is light. When we don't have what we want, where we're delayed from the promise, where we're suffering with Christ and we say, it's enough, just give me Jesus. Church, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would remind us with the power of your Spirit what our actual hope is in. God, I confess, Lord, so many times I have repeatedly tried to put my hope back in the comforts of this world, the entertainment of this world, the, the pleasures of adding more and more to my life, the, the, the pleasure of, of nurturing my ego and trying to be recognized and trying to and wondering when the moment when all that I am is going to be seen by someone else. And, and over and over, I've been disappointed by these things that I have put my hope in that haven't been you. And yet I can say absolutely with intent though you haven't always delivered exactly what I expected in the truest and most fundamental way God you have never let me down and I give you praise for that I give you worship 
I thank you for your immense patience with me, God. That you've let me grow into being a man. That you've let me grow into being a pastor, a father, a husband through so many failures. And I know that same mercy is available to everyone who is, who is praying with me right now. So would you remind us what our actual hope is? That it is not that things are going to get better in a month or a short amount of time. That it, that it is ultimately you. You are our hope. You are our life. You are the hope of glory. Our life is not our own anymore. We are bound up with you in this relationship of love and bound to one another in your kingdom forever. Lead us by your Holy Spirit to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. And may we be a preservative for good. May we flavor and show where your kingdom is coming through. We can't do this without you, God. Help us by your Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.